Well, I've developed a bad habit. My bad habit is walking around with no cash. I've gotten into the habit of just swiping. How about you? Don't always have a lot of cash on me. A few years ago, our staff went on a retreat, and we went to a place to have lunch. We went to order our food, and guess what? This place didn't take a card. You had to pay with cash. And guess who the staff member was that had cash to pay for our meal? Guess. Frank. Frank had the cash, and Frank bailed us out, and uh, Frank enabled us to eat that day. Grateful for him. Potentially embarrassing situation. We order food, and there's no cash to pay for it. But here's the deal. I knew better. And I knew better because for years, my dad has been telling me, Wade, you need to make sure you always have cash on you. He, I mean, every time I'm around him, he tells me that. You need to make sure you have cash. And, and uh, I could, I, I, as, as I went to the counter and they didn't take a card, I could just almost see my dad in my mind just going. You've had that experience too, haven't you? Growing up, you think that you're smarter than your parents, but the older you get, the smarter they get. You realize that many areas, your father really does know best, parents know best. We're going to see in our text of Scripture that God, our Father, really does know best. And the Israelites needed to learn that lesson, and we need to learn that lesson. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we will begin reading in verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. By the way, I'm grateful for my Bible. How about you? Truth with no mixture of error. God speaking to us. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible says it came about when Samuel was old that, the, the, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah, they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so that they are doing so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Let's pray. Father. We pause to give you glory. We recognize today that you're the only one that's worthy of glory. You're the only one that's worthy of honor and praise. But we bless you with all that we are, with our souls. We bless 
your holy name. You are the God of the universe. You are the God of redemption. You are our only hope. And this time is all about you. And Father, we ask you today to move with power. Father, I pray that just like the disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus when they were encountered by the risen Lord Jesus, I pray that just like them, our hearts would burn within us as you speak to us. God, I pray that we would be expectant today, that we would expect you to change us, that we would expect you to transform us, Lord, that you would give us the grace to walk out of this room today fundamentally different than when we arrived. Help us to understand what it means that you are our Father. Lord, help us to trust you more fully. Help us to listen to you more fervently. And we'll thank you for that grace. Lord, would you order my steps in your word today? For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we began our study of the book of 1 Samuel, we saw that the setting of, uh, the time setting, the, the period of Israel history in which the book began was the time of the judges, which was a time of great spiritual darkness. The last verse of the book of Judges says, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. But God was not through with his people. God intervened in the lives of his chosen nation and uh, decided to lead them out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. And he decided to do this by raising up a new leader, a new judge, a new prophet by the name of Samuel. And the first seven chapters have shown us this transition leadership where God removed the old wicked leadership and raised up Samuel to be his spokesman uh, for the people. And last week we saw how good things were going. Last week we saw that Samuel, as the leader of Israel, uh, called the people to repent and turn to God and seek his face. And because they did, God helped them. God gave them a great victory over the Philistines. And and at the end of that chapter we see uh, Samuel taking a stone and calling the stone Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. And he says, this stone will remind us that the Lord has helped us, that the Lord has given us this victory. And so through the leadership of Samuel, God is is working in mighty ways for and through his people. But things begin to go wrong. Look what it says in chapter 7, verse 15. It says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So his It's teaching us that Samuel was the primary spiritual leader for Israel. He was a judge, which means he would decide between disputes that the people would have. But his role of judge was one of spiritual leadership. It went beyond just deciding disputes to providing ritual and spiritual direction and speaking on behalf of God. And so as the load grew, uh, Samuel enlisted his sons to help him out. Samuel was growing old. And look what happens in Verse 1, it says, he, of chapter 8, He appointed his sons judges over Israel. The name of firstborn is Joel, the name of the second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. 
when your job is to judge, when your job is to provide fairness, and you take bribes, there's a problem there, right? And his sons were going in an ungodly uh, direction. Now, just a kind of a brief aside here very quickly. If you'll notice, earlier in 1 Samuel, we saw that the sons of the high priest Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were wicked, evil uh, leaders. And their wickedness was attributed to Eli's passivity as a father. He did not rebuke them. He did not intervene and try to get them to go in a new direction. Here, uh, there's nothing said about Samuel's parenting. There's, 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 there's no uh, statement of his, of, his, um, of his passivity as a father. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the sense of what we get here is that Samuel was doing what he needed to do. He was a good spiritual leader. And, and still his sons went in an ungodly direction. So watch this. Passive father, sons going in an un, ungodly direction. Godly father, sons going in an ungodly direction. What do we learn from that? We learn that sometimes our kids go in the wrong direction because of our, our failures as parents. Sometimes we can, we can be serving the Lord, seeking the Lord, fearing the Lord, teaching our kids about the Lord, and they can still decide to go in the wrong direction because ultimately... Our kids have to make their own decisions, spiritually speaking. Listen, we can't choose Jesus for our kids, can we? No matter how bad we would want to, we can't choose Jesus. Now, there's this, when, you, when you raise your kids and nurture and admonition of the Lord, it gives them a better foundation from which to embrace the Lord. But sometimes, even when we've done all that we know to do and done the best we can do, sometimes our kids will say no to our God for a season maybe in their life. And, and, and that's, that's concerning and it's tough. But, but that's the reality. We see that in this passage. And so the sons uh, don't walk in the ways of Samuel. And the people are concerned because Samuel's growing older. His sons are not doing a good job in leading the nation. And they come up with a solution for leadership for their people. And that's where we find ourselves in this text today. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at the nation of Israel and, and let chapter 8 become a mirror for us. Because... In chapter 8, we see the nation of Israel and some tendencies in them, but these tendencies are all things that we struggle with in our own lives. You know, it's so easy for me when I'm reading the Old Testament to say, those, those Israelites, man, didn't they know any better? But guess what? Sometimes we're guilty of the very same things. So I want this text to be a mirror for us to see those tendencies that we often struggle with so we can avoid those tendencies. So let me give you these that come straight from the text. First of all, we see in the nation of Israel a dangerous desire to be like the world. A dangerous desire to be like the world. Samuel's sons were not godly leaders. Samuel was getting older. So notice the elders' solution to the leadership problem. There in verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Behold... You have grown old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king for us to judge us. Now, look at this last phrase. Like all the nations. We want a king just like all the other nations have a king. They can rally behind their king and, 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 and they, uh, they, 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 they put their king on a pedestal and, and their king leads them into battle. We want a king like the other nations have. Look what they say in verse 19. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. So the reason stated 
for the people wanting a monarchy is because they wanted to be like the nations around them. But here's the problem. God didn't want his people to be like the nations around them. He wanted his people to be differently. You see, God desires for his people to be different than the world. He desires for his people to be different than the world. We see this truth in the Old Testament in reference to his chosen nation, the nation of Israel. Listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is saying to the Israelites, you're a kingdom of priests. And what's a priest do? A priest is a mediator between God and man. So when he says, you are a kingdom of priests, what he's saying is this. You will, as a nation, make my name known to other nations. You'll be a mediator between me and the other nations. And they will see how great I am, and they'll learn it from you. You will be a kingdom of priests. I'm setting you apart. I'm calling you to be different so all the nations can see how great I am. That's what this verse is all about. In Leviticus 20, verse 26, God says, Thus you are to be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples, from all the other nations, to be mine. God had chosen Israel to be his kingdom of priests, and he he expected them to be set apart, to be different than the nations. And so God desires for his people to be different than the world. We see that in the Old Testament. We also see this truth in the New Testament in reference to the church. We are God's people today. When we embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we become the people of God, right? And as the people of God, just like the people of God in the Old Testament, God expects us to be different than the world. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So he's saying, listen. You live among a a perverse people, perverse generation. I want you to be different. I want your light to shine. I want your life to be distinctive. God expects his people, the church, to be different than the world. It's It's a principle all throughout God's word. Now, so Ed, why is that? Why is this such a big deal? Why does God want us to be so different than the, the, the world around us. Well, if you look there on your notes, when we show the world the difference that Jesus makes, we point people to God. Think about the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now think about, think about that verse. Jesus is saying, If you let your light shine, if your life looks different than the world, then your life has the potential to move people towards God. Isn't that amazing? Let me me say it again because I don't think you got that. If you let your light shine, if you look different than the world, your life has the potential to move people towards God. It's a big deal. That's why God wants us to be different, to show people the difference that the Lord makes in our lives, show people that Jesus Christ really does make a difference. You see, when we show the world the difference that Jesus makes, we point people to God. And when we seek to be like the world, the flip side of that, we lose our distinctiveness and thus the effectiveness of our witness. Listen to what 
Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You've been set apart. You're a priesthood to make my name known to other people so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice the connection here between being set apart and being a witness. You've been set apart, you're a holy nation, so that you can proclaim to a lost and dying world how good I am. Now listen to me. When we lose our distinctiveness, our message loses credibility. For example, we might go to a co-worker and say, hey, Jesus will change your life. They look back at you and say, he hasn't changed your life. Jesus will change your marriage. And they look back at you and say, well, you're always fussing, fussing about your spouse at work. He hasn't changed your marriage. See, when there's no difference in our lives, when we talk like the world talks and think like the world thinks and do what the world does, when there's no difference in our lives, we don't show people that Jesus really does change lives, right? And our message loses its power and its impact and its credibility. So it's a big deal that we be different than the world. But in the nation of Israel, we see this, this decision, this desire. We want to be like the world. Give us a king. We want to do things the way the world does things. And for all of us in this room, that is a temptation. To give in to the ways of the world. To conform to the ungodly. To conform to the worldviews of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a world that does not love God. We're bombarded with messages of materialism and, and hedonism and immorality and impurity and sensuality. We're, we're bombarded with that. We're, we're constantly being drawn. Hey, be like the world. What matters most is what you own and what matters most is your appearance and what matters most is what people think about you and, and, and all, these, all these messages that just draw us away from finding our sufficiency in Christ, that, that draw us away from finding our satisfaction in Christ. We're bombarded with those messages all the time and the temptations that we give in. And instead of living differently and showing the pe people the difference Jesus makes, we give in and become worldly. And all of us have that temptation. We need to resist it. See, sometimes the worldly thing is for you to take that promotion at work. But then you look at your schedule and say, okay, that promotion is going to take me away from my family. I'm going to have less time with them and less opportunity to influence them. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go against everything the world tells, tells me. I'm going to say no to the promotion and yes to my family. See how that works? There, and, and there are many, many instances in our life where we're confronted with doing things the world's way or doing things God's way. Even in the church, we're, we're, we are tempted with worldliness. I think in, 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 in the 90s and in the early part of this century, the church has bought into this idea that, hey, if we can, can outworld the world, man, people will be lining up to come to our church. We can, because we know the culture is driven by entertainment. So if we can entertain and put on a show, man, folks will come. But God didn't tell us to entertain. God told us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He told us to preach the word, right? But the temptation is let's do things the way the world does things. Let's be worldly. Let's entertain. And listen to me. We'll never outworld the world. Amen? But what we can do 
is we can show people that Jesus Christ really does transform lives. And so we see in the Israelites a dangerous desire to be like the world. And it's a mirror, isn't it? We see that temptation in all of our own lives. There's a second tendency here that we struggle with and want to avoid. The second tendency is this. We see a conscious decision to reject God's authority. A conscious decision to reject God's authority. Look what happens in verse 6. They ask for a king that says the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. Now that word uh, displeasing there is literally uh, the word evil. This thing was evil in the sight of Samuel. Our translations kind of water that down. But Samuel says it was evil. When they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And notice the contrast here. The nation of Israel gets their cue from the world. They look around and say, well, they have a king. They have a king. They have a king. They have a king. So we need a king. What does Samuel do? Samuel goes to the Lord. Samuel prays. The Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, watch this, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Here's what the Lord's saying. Samuel, this, is, this has nothing to do with your leadership. They are rejecting me. They don't want me to be king. Now, before this moment, Israel was a theocracy. In other words, God was the king, God called the shots, and he would raise up human leaders to speak on his behalf. And we see in chapter 7 it went really, really well. Samuel spoke on behalf of God, called the people to repent and, and seek God's face. They do, and God gives them a great victory. I mean, it worked out well when they, when they respond to God as their king. But the people of Israel didn't want a theocracy anymore. They didn't want God to be their king. They wanted an earthly king. They didn't want to live like that anymore. See, even though God had blessed them, they didn't want him as their king. Even though a theocracy would have worked well if they would have obeyed, they did not want his authority over their lives. They didn't want him as their king. So well, why, what's the deal here? I mean, what's the problem with those Israelites? that They don't want God to be their king. Well, here it is. They did not trust God's provision and guidance. Let me read you what one scholar wrote about this text. He wrote, Israel wanted to be like other nations. Israel wanted a military commander to fight their battles. What was wrong with this thinking? At each point, it shows lack of trust in God. Israel was not to be like other nations, for God was her king, and God led Israel in battle. But notice what the scholar says here. He says, the reason they did not want God as their king is because they did not trust God. And if we struggle with surrendering all to the Lord, if we struggle with the kingship and the lordship of God over our lives, it's because we don't trust him. It's a trust issue. It's just that simple. You see, do we trust God enough to surrender fully to him? Do we really believe that God's will and God's way and God's commandment commandments are what's best for us? Because if we really believe that, then we'll surrender all to him, right? You can have my life, you can have my money, you can have my marriage, you can have my job, you can have it all, and you're king over all that. Because I trust that your way is best. I trust that Father knows best. You know more than I know. And so I'm going to fully surrender to you. Claire and I found ourselves saying 
in an increasing way lately as we raise kids these words. Just trust me. Have you had to say to your kids, just trust me. You tell them not to do something or tell them to do something, and that, that, that command doesn't make sense to them. They, in their limited perspective, they don't know what you know. They don't have the experience you have. In their limited perspective, they don't understand why you're telling them not to do that or to do something that seems puzzling to them. They don't understand. They don't have all the facts. And there's times when they just need to trust you and do what you say, right? And it's the same way when it comes to our relationship with God. God reveals his will and his way to us in his word. And, and, and when we think we've got a better way, it is the epitome of foolishness. Because God is all-knowing. He knows things we don't know, right? He has a perspective that we do not have. So when he tells us to do something, what he says is what's best. Father knows best. And sometimes we need to learn just to trust him and obey him. So the question for all of us today is this. Do we trust God enough to fully surrender our lives to him? Can we say, I surrender all? Because I believe when I put my life in your hands, God, that's going to be what's best for my life. Do you trust God that much? Do you trust him enough to obey him? Radically, we see in the nation of Israel a conscious decision to reject God's authority. And I think sometimes we do that as well. We, God, you can have this part of my life and this part of my life, but this stuff over here, God, that's my stuff. I want to keep doing it my way. What we're saying is, I don't want you to be king, just like the Israelites were. There's a third tendency we see in the nation of Israel that we want to be aware of so we can avoid it. We saw in the nation of Israel that there was a dangerous desire to be like the world. We saw in the nation of Israel there was a conscious decision to reject God's authority. But third and last, we see in the nation of Israel an unteachable spirit. An unteachable spirit. Look what happens in verse, verse 8. He says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. You know what I love about this text? I love how God graciously warns them. And, and God always does that with us. God graciously gives us the information we need to make wise decisions. The Lord says, okay, you want a king. You want to do it the world's way. I'll give you what you want, but before you make your final decision, there's some things you need to be made aware of. And he tells Samuel, I want you to warn them about the consequences of this decision. Look what he says in verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will running before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and 
of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. The Lord said, okay, before you make your final decision, before you give your final answer, you need to understand that if you choose a king and remove yourself from this theocracy, me being your king, it's not going to go well with you. God is graciously warning them. The king was going to, to, to take and take and take to provide for his growing kingdom. And that was going to be the case through the, the monarchy of Israel. The kings were going to take and take and take. When God was giving, 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 these earthly kings were going to take, take, take. The people would one day experience the oppression of a king, and they would cry out, God, we messed up. And God's going to say, okay, I told you on the front end, I'm not going to listen to your request for help. Wow. He's graciously warning them so that they could make a wise decision. You know what? God does the same thing for us. God gives us all the facts, right? He gives us all the facts. He tells us that if we disobey him and disregard him, things will not go well for us. As a matter of fact, over in Galatians 6, the Bible says, what a man sows, this he will also reap. The Bible's clear. There are consequences for ignoring God. Consequences for doing things your own way. God gives us the Bible, listen to me, so we can make fully informed decisions. And choose God's way instead of our way. And understand the repercussions if we choose to go our way. Our Father knows what's best for our lives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God our Father really does know what's best for you? Our Father knows what's best for our lives. And, and here's the deal. We ignore His instructions and His warnings at our own peril. Look what happens in verse 19. They'd been warned by God. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, no. Think about that. They just told God no. How many of you like it when your kids tell you no? Hey, wash your hands, it's time for dinner. No. That wouldn't go so well in your house, would it? And the people here say, no. But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. After Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his own city. Their doom was sealed. God said, okay, we'll give them what they want. I'll give them an earthly king to teach them a very valuable lesson that they don't know what's best. I know what's best. One commentator wrote of this passage. In a move that would determine the shape of Israel's history from that day forward, Israel's elders ignored Samuel's warning and restated their demand for a human king. Consistent with this pattern of fulfilling even Israel's sinful request, the Lord acceded to their will. A troubling future for Israel was thus assured. When they chose to go their own way, a troubling future was assured. And what do we see happening? In chapter 9, 
God begins to establish the monarchy for Israel. And from that day on, there were some bright spots, but for the most part, from that day on, we see the trajectory of Israel going down, 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 down until they were destroyed by rival nations. When they chose to do their own thing, they chose to, to say, okay, Father doesn't know what's best, we know what's best. They assured a very troubling future. And when we ignore God's warnings, when we ignore God's will and God's way, we are assuring ourselves a troubling future. A troubling future. So my question for you is this. Do you have a teachable spirit? A teachable spirit? Where you want God to mold you and make you and and grow you in wisdom. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1 very quickly. Proverbs chapter 1. I want to show you this. Proverbs chapter 1. Verse 5. A wise man will increase in learning. You know what I like about that? It says a wise man keeps learning. In other words, there's never a time when you arrive, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, been walking with God, no matter how old you are, you still have some things to learn about the Lord. Amen? Some things to learn about His Word. And so we need to be people of the book that dig in, that learn. Instead of being conformed to this world, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2. As we seek God's face and dig in God's word to grow in God's wisdom, to make God-honoring decisions. In other words, we've got to stay teachable. We've all got some more things to learn about serving God and living for God. We've got to keep a teachable spirit. But I've seen in church life, I've seen people that are very unteachable. They think they've got it all figured out. No one can tell them anything. They can do their own thing. And they are in peril of missing God's will and way for their life. I hope you have a teachable spirit. I hope you realize that you haven't arrived. That you've got some more to learn so you can serve God for His glory. An unteachable spirit. You know what the nation of Israel was doing and what we often do to God? The nation of Israel was like a a kid whose parents said, don't touch this burner, it'll burn you. And the kid kept, kept move, keeps moving towards the burner. Don't touch this burner, it'll burn you. And the kid touches the burner. That's what the nation of Israel was doing. They weren't teachable. They would not listen to God's warnings. And they were burned. And the same thing can happen in our lives. Be teachable. Now I want to close with this thought. If you look there under... Your notes, closing thought. I want to share this with you because you know what I see in chapter 8? In chapter 8, I see myself. Don't you? I see some of my own foolishness and folly reflected in the nation of Israel. Don't you? But you know what else I see in chapter 8? I see Jesus. So wait, how do you see Jesus in chapter 8? I mean, it's a, 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 an obscure story of history about the governance of Israel. What's it got to do with Jesus? Well, here's the deal. Look in your notes. In spite of the faithlessness of his people, the Father is always faithful. He would allow a 
flawed human monarchy. We'll read about it in 1 Samuel. You can keep reading in 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. He allowed a flawed human monarchy. And then through that monarchy, through that lineage, he would send the king of kings. God used the folly of the people to further his glorious plan of salvation. So God gave them an imperfect human king, and they would see the problems with that. But then when they came to the end of themselves, God would say, I'm going to send you a a, a king who is perfect, a king of kings, the Messiah who will come and die for your sins and rise from the dead so you can be ruled by the prince of peace. Even though God exceeds to their will, says, okay, I'll give you a king. God was not through with Israel yet. And because God was not through with Israel, he was not through with you. God was going to send through that monarchy, that flawed human monarchy, a perfect king named Jesus. We should bow our knees to him. Confess with our tongues that he is Lord. Because that king is our only hope.